It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Today, the Supreme Court of the United States expressly took away a constitutional right from the American people. President Joe Biden condemned the Supreme Court decision that stripped away the constitutional right to abortion while acknowledging there was little he could do about it. The decision on Friday overturned Roe v. Wade and wiped out the constitutional protections for abortion that had stood for nearly a half century. The impact promises to be transformational, likely making abortion illegal in half the country, from a court that was divided down ideological lines. My guest is Catherine Frankie, a professor at Columbia Law School and the director of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law. Broadly speaking, Catherine... What does this decision tell you? Well, what it tells me is that my mother had greater rights to her own liberty and equality than my daughter will. Access to abortion, access to the full range of reproductive health care is fundamental to the idea of women's citizenship. And for the court to withdraw that right and to do it in such a snarky fashion feels like a punch in the face. I think, for women across this country, as well as other people who can get pregnant. You said snarky fashion, so that leads to my next question, which is, <laughs> can you explain the reasoning that Justice Alito used to get to reversing Roe v. Wade? Well, he takes the position that Roe was wrongly decided in 1973, that it was a weakly decided decision, poorly reasoned and that there's nothing that stands in the way of the court now overruling it. And he does so by turning to 13th century, 14th century legal treatises to show that abortion was something that was considered criminal in England that many years ago. And almost all of the citations that Justice Alito uses are from old white men who don't have a stake or at least don't have the same stake in this issue that we do today. So it really, it not only freezes the Constitution in a pre-1970s place, it actually freezes the Constitution in the 13th century, which I just think is appalling, um, appalling. On Thursday, the Supreme Court went back to the 1700s and 1800s to declare that the Second Amendment allows citizens to carry handguns in public. Is this the revenge of the textualists? 
Well, some of these judges are diehard textualists, and some of them are opportunists. And so when history helps you for the arguments you're going to make, they will turn to it. You know, in this case, what we learned in a 24-hour period is that states have no power and no constitutional right to regulate guns, and at the same time, states have the absolute power and right to regulate women's bodies. And it, it makes you question what kind of citizens women are in this country after those two decisions. Is the majority opinion just plain wrong? Is it unprincipled? How would you characterize it? Well, I think the majority is ideological. Most of these members of the majority were appointed to the court precisely because they took this position on abortion. There's no mistaking that fact. And what they do is they cherry-pick history. They cherry-pick Supreme Court decisions from the past to say that Roe was wrongly decided. But as the long dissent in this case shows from three members of the court, there are parallel histories with competing narratives about what it means to be free, what privacy might mean in this country, and what equality might mean. So it's not a surprise that we have a majority of the court now that disfavored abortion as a constitutional right. What I find most shocking is the way in which they did it. And I think Chief Justice Roberts's concurrence really brings that home by describing Justice Alito's opinion as a jolt to the legal system. The dissent in which the three liberal justices united says that no one should be confident that this majority is done with its work. And Justice Clarence Thomas, in his concurrence, says, you know, we should reconsider all of the court's substantive due process precedents, like same-sex marriage and contraception. Justice Alito, in his majority opinion, says, look, we're only deciding the abortion case today. All those other matters of sex and sexuality, whether it's a right to contraception or the decriminalization of sodomy or same-sex marriage rights, those are not implicated in this decision. But to be honest, the way in which Justice Alito's opinion kicks the legs out from the Constitution that held up Roe versus Wade, it's hard to imagine how all those other rights have anything left to stand on. There's a lot of talk about what will happen next. And one thing that's that people are concerned about is that red states will try to prosecute in some way women who cross state lines. Justice Kavanaugh, in his concurrence, says that's not going to happen I mean, can we trust his opinion there? Well, he's no expert in state prosecutions. I think he's completely out of order in saying that won't happen uh, because the Supreme Court's decision is actually an invitation to local prosecutors to enforce the criminal laws in exactly that way. So we'll have to wait and see. But um, I, there are many, many people who feel very strongly about this issue, as we know, uh, and then do feel that abortion is murder. And why wouldn't they prosecute um, those laws? just as robustly as they prosecute the murder of already born people. Is this the first time the court has taken away a constitutional right in modern history? Well, no. The court does reverse itself from time to time. They're loath to do so. And Justice Alito gives us a very long footnote where he goes through the other places where the court has reversed itself. But this is the first time that we've seen something as such a fundamental right central to half the population's idea of being full citizens obliterated in such a crude and I would say cruel way. President Biden says it's up to Congress now to pass a law protecting the right to abortion. We're unlikely to see that anytime soon. Is there anything else that can be done at this point? Vote, right? This issue now is a state-by-state issue. 
we have to show up in the, at the polls. We have to get different people in our state legislatures and protect abortion rights as contraceptive rights and a whole range of rights having to do with reproductive health care and in the ballot box, because that's now where this issue has been kicked by the Supreme Court, is into the state legislatures. Thanks, Catherine. That's Professor Catherine Frankie of Columbia Law School. Coming up next, the repercussions of this decision. This is Bloomberg. Here's Justice Samuel Alito at his Supreme Court confirmation hearings in 2006. Roe versus Wade is a, an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It was decided in 1973, so it's been on the books for a long time. It has been challenged on a number of occasions, and I think that when a decision is challenged and it is reaffirmed, that strengthens its value as stare decisis for at least two reasons. First of all, the more often a decision is reaffirmed, the more people tend to rely on it. And secondly, I think stare decisis reflects the view that there is wisdom embedded in decisions that have been made by prior justices. But on Friday, Justice Alito refused to follow that precedent by prior justices, which has been relied on by women for nearly half a century, and wrote the majority opinion saying that Roe v. Wade was egregiously wrong from the day it was decided and there is no constitutional right to abortion. Joining me is Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg political contributor and a professor at Iona College. Jeannie, put this decision in the context of Supreme Court history. Will this day stand out? It will stand out. You know, I think the word that keeps coming to my mind is momentous. That is the uh, one word that captures this. I have been racking my brain, just as an example, to try to come up with a time at which the Supreme Court had a right that they then took away. You look throughout American history, and maybe other people can identify one. I cannot. And so if you think about, you know, women for half a century enjoying this right and that it's been taken away, I think momentous is the one word to put this in perspective. And, you know, I was struck just as an aside by the fact that in the majority decision, Alito actually compares Roe to Plessy. And, you know, that really struck me when he's trying to make the case that we've overturned, overruled precedent. He uses Plessy several times as an example of that. And that, to me, is astonishing and will be as we look back on this decision. Speaking about precedent, and of course the court overrules precedent from time to time, but does the court this week say, well, we don't care about precedent? They essentially say, you know, we're not going to be held hostage by precedent. And that, again, is a quite astonishing statement by the majority in this court. And, you know, in the majority decision, he does go through in some real grave detail the fact that the court has overruled precedents in the past, and he goes through this litany and this idea they're not going to be held hostage by precedent. But again, it's important to stress, as I'm reading through this, the precedent that they're talking about that they've overruled in the past, you don't see any in which a right was granted and then they took it away. And that's what I think is really astonishing about what we're living through at this point. I know that anti-abortion activists have been working since Roe v. Wade was decided to get it reversed, but it still seems fast to see a constitutional right wiped out. Sitting here today, it does feel 
stunningly fast. But if we look back, this has been almost half a century long quest by members of the Republican Party, but not just the Republican Party. You also have Democrats, of course, who are pro-life. And, you know, Roe v. Wade came out in 1973, and since that moment, you have a real committed group of people in this country who have done everything they can, including voting on this issue, focusing on getting the judges, the justices in place who would overturn eventually Roe. So it really has been a decades-long quest that has finally come to fruition. And, you know, one thing I think it's important to underscore is that this is always the danger when a right is protected in the court. Then the membership of the court matters an awful lot. And so I am of the opinion that if you want to protect a right, you best do it at the ballot box, because when you do it in the court, it means these confirmation hearings and one or two justices on the court can take that right away. And that's what we've you know, been seeing over the last several years. The fear of these confirmation processes for these three Trump appointees have almost exclusively been about Roe. And of course, it doesn't matter because they got on the court and they overruled it. This also puts a question mark in my mind about the utility of confirmation hearings, because each and every one of these justices said during those hearings that Roe was a right embedded in the Constitution. I mean, Justice Kavanaugh in particular was very emphatic about that. Yeah, and I'm so glad you said that because, you know, for so long we've looked at these confirmation processes, particularly since Robert Bork, and people have been wondering, you know, what is really the value of these? And to your point, now we see, and we heard Susan Collins of Maine say this, that the senators were misled, both privately, we understand, in individual meetings with the senators, and of course publicly. You know, most of them taking this argument uh, that they don't have an opinion on the issue, um, others taking the sort of stance that they value precedent, they value stare decisis, so they wouldn't think of overturning a long-standing right. And of course, that's not at all what happened. So I think, and, you know, just as an aside, we, we have a president who's one of the only presidents who is also Senate, you know, the, the leader of, of the Senate Judiciary Committee and who oversaw so many of these confirmation processes that I think we really need, do need to rethink the process by which we make these appointments and they are confirmed at the Senate level. Um, so I, I think that's something that's going to have to happen. Um, I think it's something that should have happened already because a lot of people have thought for very long that these were, you know, more show than they were substance. And, of course, now we come to recognize that people feel, you know, completely misled um, at the best and lied to at at the worst. Americans' approval of the Supreme Court is at its lowest in modern times. What does this decision do to the legitimacy of the court? I think it puts it very much in question. And as somebody who, you know, studies the court like you do and and one of my, you know, favorite institutions to talk about, I am so sad about where the court finds itself today, not just with this decision, but with the decision on guns. And the reason is, is because in some ways, the court, at least the majority, seems terribly out of touch with what's going on in the United States as you look at these sort of back-to-back decisions in the last couple days. You know, I was looking at the dissent in the gun case, 
and they start out by talking about the number of people murdered by guns in this country in 2020, and the number is utterly astonishing. And you couple that then with the fact that the court has said to the state of New York and other like-minded states that they can't protect their citizens with this regulation on conceal and carry. It seems terribly out of touch, if you think about it that way. And I think also in this decision, you know, women have enjoyed this right, people have enjoyed this right to choose for half a century for the court to come in and not even to just incrementally like the chief justice wanted, but to go to the extent of ripping that out from under, pulling the rug out from under, in other words, I think is going to create an enormous problem for the court. The justices themselves have been talking about this. As you know, they've been saying the court has become politicized. They should be very concerned about the legitimacy of the court. And that's why I liken this to a certain extent. It's probably a little bit early to say this, but, you know, the two or three worst decisions in court history, Dredd, Korematsu, and Plessy, this could end up being among those. And one of the reasons they were so traumatic, amongst other reasons, was because the court essentially lost its legitimacy in the eyes of Americans in all three of those cases, and it suffered for decades to come and struggled to find its footing again. And I fear the court may find itself in the same position today if we simply just look at the amount of protests going on outside the court and the threats of violence and the frustration that people feel with the court that's terribly out of touch with the lives of so many Americans. It's great to have you on, Jeannie. Thanks so much. That's Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg political contributor and a professor at Iona College. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.